Um, no, I don't think it takes. Hello, children. Out. What did we learn today? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, don't frame it like that. Yeah, that's the point. I think. or something you know well that was that was great yeah no so that I was really enjoyed it that was great the book's great uh it was ch- chatting to it was great i mean just so many different examples and i love the stuff uh at the end on on murray rothbard as well just because i was a, an angle that i had that hadn't occurred to me but actually ended up tying some some things together yeah me too the um the murray the way in which she located murray rothbard in that um moment of the republicans taking back congress in the early 90s um or the mid 90s and um the uh, advising pat buchanan and switching over from the elite influence neoliberalism to the idea of a bottom-up neoliberalism that would end up destroying the state and how this was inspired by the end of the cold war all of that was really really good stuff and an interesting counterpoint into the very um arch knee kind of geneva school as he puts it snooty uh snooty cosmopolitan um elite neoliberals who harked back to the kind of golden era of uh, the first half of the 20th century in europe the interwar period and so on all yeah, of that. Yeah. it was yeah. really it was a really good kind of way to frame to frame the um changes that we've seen in how neoliberalism has kind of metamorphosed over the last 30 40 years yeah absolutely for for the for listeners benefit this is our kind of post-interview chat that we're having after having recorded with Quinn Slobodian on his book Globalists uh this is kind of yeah the the, the kind of the synthesis we're, we try to synthesize it it's like it's like the after party or the hotel lobby after the after party <laughs> you don't sound yeah. very excited about being in a hotel lobby yeah we're, we're also, it, it's not called it's not called that <laughs> No, it's not. But it, it's the, it's the equivalent. The bunga after some party. Of the best, yeah. Let's let's be serious. Like some of the best parts of the party happen in the after party, in the uh, in the hotel lobby. So um, so some of the things that we wanted to pick up on to take forward from the from the discussion were about misconceptions. Continuing what Quinn kind of primed us for and raised mm. the idea of misconceptions of neoliberalism. Things that people think might be neoliberal but aren't, or vice versa, things that um, people don't think are neoliberal but actually do fit within the model. Right. I mean, you know, I, I always try to go back to like what I think are the what it what is the most popular framing of neoliberalism today. I mean, the most popular incorrect one, uh, the one that's used by uh, leftist as a as a slur word. You know, um, a swear word. Yeah, swear word. That's what I meant. Uh, but you know where it's where 
at its worst, it's just seen as you don't care, right? It's like if you're a neoliberal, you're someone who doesn't care, um, who isn't willing to use the politics or the state to make things better. Um, or, you know, or, or the what I mentioned at the end of the, the, the thing with Quinn, which is that, you know, this idea of, of the, the kind of Thatcherite vision of, of uh, neoliberalism as a kind of a sort of, pop, you know, as a faux popular doctrine, right? That you know, this popular capital, everyone can own shares, everyone can go it out and, and do fo- what they want. But it was, but it was a popular doctrine. No, it it was, but but what comes through in in Quinn's work on you know ordo liberalism and you know Vienna based neoliberalism is precisely that it was how anti mass, anti popular, and oh, anti democratic that thinking was. I think there. I mean, the the misconception I think, and it's one that is hard to get away from, is um, neoliberalism is used as a on one hand, they're kind of very small in a very small way that it's used to refer to um, kind of I don't know um, selfishness, greed, yeah, uh, kind of individual you know individual moral failings effectively as a shorthand. It's a way of uh, reviving, I suppose, certain kinds of almost Christian themes of moral critique of uh, a world that's yeah. become too greedy. Too well, and, and and it's ethical socialism which opposes itself to that vision of neoliberalism. Yeah. And that's yeah, what, it's an ethical, yeah. yeah. So it's a kind of a Christian socialism, I suppose. And, and that's what, what most left—that's what most left-right opposition, you know, over the '90s and 2000s looked like, right? It was a kind of yeah. it's community, anti-community, yeah. But then, like, but so you, as as so, a as a acid washing away community, that you have, So you have that small version, but then I think you also have a very big version of that where it's used in kind of um, enormously. It's used in this kind of incredibly kind of sweeping, abstract and um, overblown, highfalutin way of neoliberalism is suddenly, you know, something which is a a term of political economy, um, law, as Quinn said, sociology, perhaps, you know, suddenly becomes part of these grand kind of philosophical denunciations, um, you know, talking about Deleuze and Qatari and how neo, I don't know, neoliberal rhizomes are reordering our you know, reordering the identity alterity nexus at the heart of our preconceptions of what it means to be human and this kind of stuff. I can't tell if you're um, being serious or if, or if you're like parodying it. Um, but <laughs> Phil, it's impossible. Phil to unexpectedly, parody. unexpectedly shifted to being a Deleuzian from from this point on. Yeah, yeah, a exactly. Uh, the um, technical term is deluser. Um, but they're so you know, it no, kind I of. We did. Ah, oh, thank you. So it's. It's a once kind of the very big, you know, it's kind of cast at the inc- this incredibly um, abstract level and also this kind of very immediate person, sorry, at the very immediate level where, you know, this person is neoliberal because they're too attached to material things or something like that. Well, I mean, I think mm. there is something to talking about neoliberalism as a logic of competition. I mean, a past guest, um, William Davis, talks about it in those terms and we referenced that. We talked a little bit with him uh, on the episode, you know, from, from a couple of months back. And I think, I mean, that's certainly, it's certainly there, but I mean, it, it's it's interesting how Quinn's narrative is talks about something so different that it's actually hard to really bridge the two. Um, and I, and maybe, I think the, maybe the answer to that is just to all that stuff about a logic of competition and the neoliberal subject and all that, maybe it's best not called neoliberal. And actually we should, we should be coming up with different concepts and different terms to describe well, those kind of more sociological aspects. And when we're talking about you know, what we talked about in the interview with Quinn, uh, use actually the term neoliberalism. Yeah, it's a big question to what extent the account that Quinn gives is incompatible with the account that somebody like 
William Davis would would give, which is essentially a Weberian one. It's about rationalization. Maybe that's the term to bring back. It's about the about quantification, optimization, taking things which were previously almost impossible to to make into numbers and then putting them into numbers and making them compete with each other. And I think it's I mean there's there is really I think what what Quinn's book and the discussion that we had with him really emphasized, which is extremely important, is how it is about that insulation of of economic processes from democratic control. Because that is probably the key at least in the British context, probably the key sort of dynamic or the key political question at the moment, more so just, than some of the not, cultural questions. But not just the British dynamic. No, I think I precisely mean, the global one. I mean, that's, that's, yeah. the, that's any, the Any thing. country in the EU. Yeah, so he said the EU is a dry run for the WTO, and I thought it was a great point. But also the um, he mentions, I mean, he doesn't directly discuss this in the book in great detail, but mentions that part of it also is the tax haven model, the... Um, economic zone model where you carve out a territory within a state um, or the kind of the micro state where the and you set this kind of constitutional the economic constitution you fix it in such a way that it ensures that the market is firmly encased within a legal and political structure that will protect the functioning of the market in um, as the model is supposed to work so it's not just the kind of super great grand kind of supranational experiments like the european union or um, global integration like the wto but also um, places like hong kong under british colonialism export processing zones uh, tax havens and so on all these kind of uh, a kind of archipelago around the world as well um where it's, you have it, it's interesting visible it's interesting, though, that because it occurs to me that there is a certain similarity between what you just mentioned in terms of, you know, Hong Kong or Singapore or expert processing zone, like I think of like Manaus's free zone in that way that that's obviously interlinked to the global economy. I mean, that's very much the point, And it's, it's a little site of, of the global economy, which doesn't have, you know, politics interfering. It's completely rule bound in a way to to protect the free flow of capital. But then also refer to what we were talking about at the end of the discussion with Quinn, which is the the kind of Murray Rothbard populist notion, you know, of a, of a kind of neoliberal breakaway, or even thinking about someone like Peter Thiel and the kind of seasteading notion of breaking away. And it's and it, like I'm I'm trying to trying to see if there's any kind of link the between those notion. Well, yeah, I mean, I, and you know, then you're getting kind you of can... quite you're getting really far away from the Hayekian idea of building yeah. this of building a you know, that kind of form of global or regional integration, uh, you know, which which tries to circumscribe national politics. Um, mm, but there is, but, but it, yeah, but there is that still, I mean, I guess the thread there is anti-democracy and, uh, and a form of anti-politics or of circumscribing of politics, which brings me back to the episode that we did with Ishailanda, uh, which came out at the beginning of, beginning of the year, January uh, 2019, which precisely looks at how so many liberal ideas actually end up tending towards authoritarian and, and very anti-democratic thought and actually that really under, underpinning a lot of liberal thought um i guess it's something that maybe isn't recognized enough um and it was brought mm. to mind even even today when uh, someone on twitter posted something from the uh, von mises institute in in brazil uh, which was actually kind of a very racist notion saying well, you know, you can't have, yeah, you might like, you know, Sweden, Swedish social democracy, but you can't have that with a heterogeneous society. You can't have that with immigration, with mixed races and multiculturalism and so on, because that form of uh, 
of social solidarity within a nation state is only possible when you have a completely homogenous society. Um, this was subsequently deleted. Um, but there again, you have. Wait, 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 wait. I think, but I don't. I don't think. They, I think there's maybe a point there, which ties into um, uh, when we had James Hartfield on. Um, he made the point that the old, um, the old social democratic state was in fact much more racist than the neoliberal state. And, right. and that was the way in which people were bound to the state was um, the kind of welfare warfare state of the first, um, I don't know, three quarters of the 20th century in the advanced capitalist world anyway. People, um, they they got people to fight for the country and in return were given benefits for them. And it was, a, it was a way of binding a particular population to a particular political order. And it was heavily racialized um, uh, in the West. So I don't, I mean... Um, I, I think you know there is a there is a point there, um, and it shouldn't be forgotten in, no, um, you're in right. a kind of neoliberal nostalgia for the welfare state. No, and you're you're right to to specify that that's in the West because I mean I think also the you know neoliberal states uh, are very uh, operate racialized uh, models or you know implicitly or explicitly in the, the global South. But in the West, at least, yeah, I think it's it's right. I mean, at least what you know James Hartfield has written about and talked to us about was, yeah, the way in which um, neoliberals have well, you know, what we call what we called on the episode woke neoliberalism, how how they've used um, their you know a, a kind of an adherence to multiculturalism as a form of of legitimation and uh, you know of, of yeah. bringing in marginal or previously excluded populations uh, into into the mainstream. I guess I've got. Two, two, two questions on this or two things which you know kind of disconnected thoughts the first one is i mean is it the case that very very recently fascism has come to replace neoliberalism as a, a kind of um the, the opposite yeah no I, I guess kind of the enemy of the left it just it seems like this was a word that was massively overused <laughs> um in a way that the word fascist is now massively overused so everybody is now a fascist, um, whereas previously everybody who had even a, a remotely right wing and often a conservative um, political ideology was a was a neoliberal. Yeah, I think that probably is right. I mean, but it's also, I mean, it you know, it go, it's a, it's an old, it's the old kind of Stalinist Popular Front tactic to denounce anyone who's outside of the um, outside of the alliance as a fascist, and that was put in abeyance, I suppose, for a while and has now come back and it expresses the disintegration. I mean, maybe, you know, I mean, maybe it's part of that. It dis expresses the disintegration of left neoliberalism. So you had um, the mm. left had been effectively incorporated into the neoliberal order. And as neoliberalism crumbles and they're left disoriented and confused, um, they reach for they reach for fascism as a way to make sense of what's happening, feeling exceptionally so, I suppose, betrayed by the fact that they vested their hopes in the neoliberal order. It turned out to be um, limited and, uh, you know, that it's crumbled away of its own accord without any effort from the left. And now they're left kind of shrieking fascist at everything. Mm. So it's, ne it's kind of ne lobs left neoliberal order breakdown syndrome if you <laughs> well, will i mean but i think that i think that that's a good point though that phil makes that 
left neoliberalism has completely collapsed. I mean, you know, you can see the fate of of socialist parties across Europe as as the best example of that. But I think also, yeah. also, you know, I mean, it just has no intellectual force. And the sort of challengers, even within those parties, you know, the kind of young social democrats in Germany or, you know, in whatever in, in France or, you know, even aspects of momentum and uh, Corbynism in Britain, are you know seeking to challenge neoliberalism, but in but often often in 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 very I guess minor ways because they, there isn't a complete break with neoliberalism. Meanwhile, the kind of neoliberal edifice starts to adapt more nationalist and populist elements, as you know the the British Tory Party has done. Uh, well, this is so, but this this is so. This is, but the, well, uh, I'm not sure. You know, I mean, I guess it seems to be. You know, let's see what happens. But it seems to me, um, and this ties into another kind of theme on the podcast, is that the so that kind of Rothbardian vision of neoliberalism, at least as laid out by Quinn, um, that seems to me maybe to fit Brazil better than any other country I can think of at the moment, even more so than. Bless you, my bless you, my child. Who is that? <laughs> Sorry, that's me. Can you? Hey, you, know, you can. Pollen you know is you can... pollen. Pollen is neoliberal. <laughs> pollen is so neoliberal. Yeah, you can put. No, anyway, whatever. I know I can put myself on mute, but I just wanted. I just wanted listeners to to realize that I'm human. I'm not just a, not just an analytical right. Bot. Phil, yeah, Phil, your your point that that the Rothbardian vision of neoliberalism is most uh, best applied to Brazil today. Um, I'm, I'm I think of... it works better than the Trump, you know, better than Trump. I think so. I mean, you know, according to what Quinn was saying, the kind of the real, you know, is Pat Buchanan and presumably um, what's his face, Newt Gingrich. So it's the kind of um, Republican revolution of the '90s when the Republicans finally, you know, democratic domination in the post-war era. They end it. They take they inaugurate a new era in um, in congressional in congressional power in the post Cold War era. So I mean that seems to be kind of um, the Rothbardian moment more than Trump, I guess. But I'm guessing it's the background also for the Trumpian moment. But it seems like you know maybe Bolsonaro's Brazil is maybe that place where you have the um, using popular anger, hmm. so turning against the elite and using popular anger to um, dissolve state power right and that seems to be very much part of bolsonaro's project so it has that right-wing edge but at the same time it's still neoliberal in a way that i think you know trump isn't you know because the trump thing comes with protectionism and pandering to um blue-collar rust belt constituencies and trade wars and all of that whereas the bolsonaro thing having the hardcore brazilian neoliberal on his economic team um you know i think that it's a different kind of project doesn't yep. doesn't doesn't Quinn's analysis give us quite a clear kind of um, litmus test for whether something is neoliberal or not, or the extent to which it is? Because I think that that point to repeat it again about the insulation of of various uh, economic forms from democratic accountability that's the key thing. It's not about um, any of the the modes of politics or the the the, the methods of mobilisation. It's about the realm of contestability, the kind of the topic of, of the topics of politics and the and the sort of the international structures into which um, domestic politics are attempted to be to be fitted. Right. I mean, I think th- this is the thing. I, I, it's a good point because in relation to, to Brazil as well, that naked 
class war from above and the destruction of state capacities, the funding, you know, funding of education or, you know, welfare or whatever, that doesn't necessarily need to be seen as neoliberal specifically. Um, be conservative. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't even know what necessarily one would term it, but I mean... The, it is neoliberal the, in Brazil, isn't it? Well, yes, I mean, yeah, I, yeah, but what, what I mean is... What I, of his economics minister, I can't remember now his name. Yeah, yeah, Paulo Guedes, who's like an ultra neoliberal, yeah. and even the Chicago school yeah. people think like he's a little bit not, like a little bit too far. Um, that's right, I mean, the, 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 and there's an a, attempt to use a popular liberalism, a popular neoliberalism, I guess, um, against the state, against the, the center left, you know, against the establishment uh, that we're, you yeah. know, we're breaking down all these all these boundaries, which which kind of keep people down. But I one, there's a thing that in Brazil, that, that project seems to be coming apart at the seams because Bolsonaro is completely useless. Um, but let's let's at least take it. So, you know, I guess if the whole thing falls apart very quickly, we'll have to reevaluate because it's not worth talking well, about something which lasted for six months. But but perhaps um, but perhaps it proves the point that, neo you know, maybe the time of neoliberalism is over. Right. No, because um, I mean, cause, if, if that project falls, falls apart and Bolsonaro has to pivot more towards the military or nationalism. Well, it, because I mean, the, the liberalism that that's there, I mean, it's really just giving a free hand to, you know, to landowners and, and to and to certain sections of capital, probably the most reactionary sections of capital. Um, and so, yeah, rolling back some state protection there, but it's not, but it, it that doesn't really chime with uh, Quinn Slobodian's description of, you know, of ordo globalism, of, of trying to create certain orders, uh, you know, yeah, a certain type of order which places rules on what the the state can do, uh, and and tries to create a yeah to, to insulate. Well, I think he actually it's interesting because he he talks not about insulating, but in terms of. Um, uh, someone remind me of of the term he prefers to use uh, encasing in case encasing rather than insulating uh, the market um and that isn't really what what's happening in brazil i mean it's really just a kind of it's a bit of a the free for all in fact what probably is happening in brazil looks more like the crude misunderstanding of neoliberalism uh, than 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 quinsblodian's uh, proposition of how to understand it and then, and then, I guess just to, to to bring it back to to Trump, because I actually had noted down as one of the questions that we should maybe discuss is whether we should see Trump as a neoliberal. All that playing to you know, kind of rust belt and and sort of populist measures of um, you know of of pulling out of of NAFTA and so on. That that's like that has faded. I mean, that was something that was done on the campaign trail, right? And you can see how many um, of those. Trump supporters have actually ended up kind of just tiring with Trump and feeling like he wasn't actually uh, bringing change and he became part of the machine. Yeah, it's almost like he was a kind of pantomime um, distraction from the, the actual political policies that were that were being put put forward. Um, but I think I think it is in, I think it is important for the the left to broaden, you know, to have a bit of a broader vocabulary than neoliberal or not, fascist or not. And I don't think either neoliberal or, or fascist is a, is a good description of Trump. There's so many aspects, at least rhetorically, of economic nationalism um, that mean that you, yeah, I mean, but he, but he I'm, represents, I'm not a, I'm not a he represents the breakdown of the neoliberal order. I mean, I think that's the yeah. really hard thing to accept for the left, right? Because they define themselves against neoliberalism. It's difficult to accept the fact that the neoliberalism is being broken down by Trump and not by them. Well, um, 
Symptom and this is part of the difficulty of um, of what's you know, and not least the fact also that he has uh, working class support. He stole millions of demo, you know, people who voted for Dem- for Obama in the Northeast decided they didn't want to vote for Hillary. So mm, I think okay, I mean, but this that is, can be overstated. I mean, it, it was decisive, but it wasn't. No, yeah, sure. Mass, my point so. is, my point is, like, I think this is, um, you know, Trump clearly is a neoliberal. Um, and he's quite the opposite. He's disintegrating the neoliberal era. This yeah. is the form it's taking in the US. And the left has difficulty accepting that, I think, because, um, you know, they were the ones who opposed themselves to neoliberalism, but were unable to overthrow it. But I think especially when we're talking about the global hegemon, the United States, it's it's vitally important that you talk about, you know, a presidency in relation to the international order and how they relate to that, not their domestic policies, precisely for the reasons that... Quinn discusses, which is that ordo globalism is precisely about creating a sort of a global order for for the world market and uh, sure. protecting it. But so they're, but they're so, very they're very tightly connected, you know, because it's all yeah. about how we got ripped off. We did bad deals. I'm going to do better deals. So those two, um, you know, those two things are very tightly connected with uh, NAFTA negotiations, even tariffs against uh, Canada. You know. Um, uh, the trade war with uh, brewing trade war with Germany and with China, all of this. Um, so the you know it's the two things are directly connected in Trump's political project. Yeah, so I quite, another, I quite like the idea. I quite like the idea that Trump is a symptom above all of the decline or the breakdown of left neoliberalism. That really he's a he's to go back to Hillary again. He's a, he's a symptom of 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 the decline of of Hillary Clintonism. We really need to do an episode on Hillary. Every episode is on Hillary. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so so, so like every to, to get to every book about America is about the idea of America, right? Uh, to pull in another example, um, just because we've talked about it, we, there's another episode that we can refer uh, back to, which is what we did on on Hungary last year. You know, Orban there um, is you know creates a paradise for for German capital, basically. Um, what is that reading recently where it was described uh, it, it as having kind of, you know, a little a little China or even somewhere lower down the, you know, the, the, the wage scale uh, within the middle of, of, of the center of Europe? Um, at the same time as obviously having all these nationalists and, and sort of populist and very reactionary characteristics. Uh, and again, there is that just a maintenance of neoliberalism, but adding in these nationalist characteristics as a as a way of legitimizing neoliberalism but without actually changing anything in essence and i guess that's that's kind of my question about are we still in neoliberalism are we still in the neoliberal period do does the new kind of anti-globalist alliance you know in, in big scare quotes does that represent an end to neoliberalism well it's well i mean it's an interesting so it's an interesting thought, I guess. But also, I mean, it's worth bearing in mind that both Orban and Polish um, Law and Justice Party have gone against economic orthodoxy, what they were instructed to do or advised to do by international financial institutions. So there they've created um, they've created kind of business-friendly environments, particularly for um, German investment, German industrial investment, um, and also for their local um, capitalists and oligarchs connected to the regime and so on, all of that. Um, but I'm not sure that it's neoliberal. And if it is, you know, it's also highly regional as well. I mean, I think that's important. It's very much locked into the dominant economy in Europe. It's not quite pitched at the global level. And Orban's political project is also pitched, you know, in defending Europe from Muslim immigration, from foreigners and terrorism and so on. Um, so it's inflected in a very particular way. 
Mm. Yeah, I, I think that the, the key institution here, sorry to talk about it again and again, is is the European Union. I mean that the those four freedoms: goods, services, capital, and labour. That is that is that is neoliberalism. Those those four freedoms and this this whole architecture of trying to um, remove decisions about the, the the movement, the flexibility of those four factors of production. That's you know that is that is the neoliberal project, and it's and it's important to distinguish that from, I guess the you know neoliberalism with with Hungarian characteristics, which might be occurring, or with German capital characteristics, which might be occurring in Hungary. Um, important not to kind of miss the wood for the trees in in that in that sense, and and I think that's why Quinn's book and the discussion is so important to realise that that issue of scale is an in, is a really important one. It's not. You know, it's it is the transnational aspect of it is extremely important. I'm worried that any moment now George is going to break out a quote about how we live in an interregnum in which a variety of morbid symptoms appear. <laughs> yeah, uh, who's, who's that by? I, have, I haven't heard that one before. <laughs> but I think that the thing about the EU and it, it was you were right, Phil, at the very beginning to say to Quinn. I mean, you know, you've kind of written a book about the EU, um, not explicitly, of course, but. Um, you know that that is the 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 most perfect um, international structure yet devised that fits with the you know the ordo liberals and the the, the, the neoliberals vision of, yeah. of of politics and I put politics in square quotes because of course they want to to limit you know national politics to the greatest yeah. extent and I think we shouldn't be just because it is that you know so they've created the, the, the European Union obviously undertakes certain state functions and coordinating function and it's you know as as the kind of right-wing Eurosceptics love to complain about oh it creates too much regulation and so on but this is all for the it might not be the the most rational form because of the implementation of certain policies and certain dysfunctions but it basically the, the objective is to create a space for the smooth flow of capital and one shouldn't be distracted really when <laughs> when certain specific capitals or um, you know representatives of of national capital uh, start you know complain about specific aspects of the EU. So when the British complain about you know the British capitalists complain about the EU, for example, or or less even that, but a, more like right wing British politicians complain about the EU. It's not. It's not anti-neoliberal it's just that they're grading against certain particular aspects of that yeah but also that they they fail to um they fail to understand the limits of their own project so you know they imagine that they imagine that it could be done without the bad parts of the things they don't like about the european union only speaks to um to how little they understand what's necessary in order to keep um in order to keep the whole structure together so you know they kind of, yeah. I think it speaks uh, you know they're un, unwilling and unable to the fact that they're unable to see the compromises that are necessary to keep what they like effectively in existence only speaks I think to the weakness of their ideas and their theories to begin with. Well, and Quinn mentions this in his book that yeah for for the British perhaps the European Union is too European and they have perhaps a very neoliberal vision, but which is a global one where, you know, that they're scared of the EU becoming too domineering uh, and too much of a regional hegemon instead of Britain being able to play out in the, in the whole world. But I think that's really fantastical, right? I mean, that's what you're saying. They don't appreciate the limitations of their own vision. 
or the, the, yeah, the or practical they, limitations they of that vision. How it, yeah, how it doesn't work, where it breaks down, where it's not no, no, no longer sustainable. So maybe as a way to, to close this out, we should ask the question, because it's sometimes uh, thrown at, well, thrown at Lexiters, I guess, uh, that, you know, Brexit is the greatest neoliberal dream because it's fits in with, you know, the disaster capitalist narrative that, you know, you you, you create chaos and then you can privatize things and, and so on. Um is Brexit <laughs> no, and not, not not a kind of left wing version of Brexit, but actually existing Brexit? Uh, is it neoliberal? Well, I'm not a Lexiter, so I should hand it over to George uh, to answer that question. God, I knew you were going to say that. It and feels grading against the term Lexit. Is just anyway. Uh, it's we, true, though. I mean, it's annoying that Phil makes the point because it is a it is an important and good point. <laughs> How is it annoying that I make it? <laughs> the, the 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 you know Brexit is progressive, full stop, and that. It does precisely in in whatever form it, it ends up in the short and medium term. It does go against this um, insulation, this encasement of, of of economics from from politics, and that is extremely important. It's not about whether you win or lose in the in the extremely short term. It's the fact that it is that more democratic contestation is is essentially an anti neoliberal force, and that's you know that's what socialists should be arguing for. You know, sorry to just deliver the set piece, but I mean that's 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 the point, isn't it? That the the socialism is democracy, and that neoliberalism is is incompatible with democracy, as the EU is yeah. incompatible with democracy, with and mass, that's with mass popular rule and self government. Yeah, with... I think it goes further though as well, because I think what's and this is a point made by the um, political theorist Richard Tuck that paradoxically um, Brexit means that Britain is becoming, the constitutional form of Britain is becoming more based around popular sovereignty, um, precisely along a kind of continental, um, even, you know, I mean, to say it was Jacobin would be to push it too far, but it's dissolving away parliamentary sovereignty. And the precondition for Britain's integration into the European Union was very much parliamentary, so um, parliamentary sovereignty, parliamentary supremacy. The idea that once this group is elected, um, they can essentially do whatever they will with that power, independent of the of popular will, and that is the that was the that was the it was parliamentary sovereignty that enabled entry into the European Union or its precursors in the 1970s, and that is what's being dissolved now because Parliament is being shown to be incapable of enacting popular will. Um, and it's in collision also with the idea of popular sovereignty, which is manifested in the and the result of the referendum. So paradoxically, Brexit is also bringing Britain closer to precisely the popular sovereignty that neoliberals have always been so suspicious of, as Quinn emphasized in the in the talk. Well, to bring us back round, then, I think it's what, what I guess the, my main takeaway from this whole thing has been the degree to which popular sovereignty is the enemy of neoliberalism and that they stand very clearly opposed not adjacent not diagonal in any way but that the neoliberal project yeah. is a way of yeah. defeating popular sovereignty and quinn puts this great i think in a subtitle Side stepping it well yeah. sidestepping it almost well but it's also circumscribing it right i mean it's it's mm. allowing yeah. you know allowing some politics to happen in you know the the cultural sphere which is what quinn references in relation to the habsburg empire that you know you had some politics which had dealt with culture but but in terms of the important yeah things, you get your own language schools and that kind of business precisely um but but i think he puts it 
very well with a, a neat subtitle in the book, which is people, uh, you know, a world of people without a people. So it's against mm. the formation of a demos. And that's what neoliberalism yeah. fundamentally aims at. And it's very, it's actually linked in left neoliberalism because that was the offer. You know, like everyone's going to get their culture. Um, everyone's going to, you know, we're going to have a celebration of diversity and identity and everyone's going to be put in their little box and you'll get funding for your, um, you know, I don't know. Yeah, your pet projects or whatever. Yeah. yeah, exactly. You'll get money for that. Um, and that was the deal. So a kind of um, similar to the, so the if the inspiration, if Quinn is right, you know, the inspiration comes from the Habsburg Empire, whether you have economic um economic rule which is an economic constitution which is locked in but you get kind of um people feel that they have some degree of political autonomy or in cultural expression and that's very much the kind of model that ruled in 1990s ideas of globalization cultural differences but economic uniformity and lack of political control over the economy yeah and the only form of Mm. politics that you have is cultural politics yeah Yeah, culture wars all right. I, it's funny that that was your. It was funny that that was your takeaway. My takeaway was you need to build a Mon Pelerin society for the left. You need to run junkets <laughs> as many as you can. For example, to California. Right. You right. Just, that's uh, more. Need to find some money. More junkets. Going. More junkets for the lads. All right. I think we should leave it there. Uh, thanks, guys. Thanks, Alex. I don't know. Why I said thanks, guys. Maybe I should. Maybe I should do something else. Um, that out. No. Namaste. Um, Namaste. Okay. This is market Stalinism at its best. Exactly. Um, it's it's organic, but also organized.